Take your Bibles and turn with us to Mark chapter 14, and we will pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 32. Are we on? We don't want to make the Dales mad. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 32. Then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled deeply, distressed. Then he said to them, my sorrow is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all, these, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not my will, but what, I, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for the eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. As Jesus and his disciples left the upper room, we see that they headed for the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see that there is a completely different scene. We come to what Sinclair Ferguson calls the most sacred and solemn scene in the entire Bible. Jesus had been teaching the disciples as we have seen in the upper room, and now we see that he focuses on his agony. Jesus moves from the cup there at the institution of the Lord's Supper to the cup that he receives from the Father. And here, Jesus' humanity is revealed in a way we have not seen throughout the entire gospel. The God-man is overwhelmed with anxiety as he draws closer and closer to the cross. He reveals the heaviness of spirit as he contemplates what lies before him praying in a manner that is unclear to many, and we will examine that in a future sermon more deeply. But he remains steadfast to the task that his heavenly Father has given him and that he agreed to in the eternal council. We see that he sets before us an example. And later Peter wrote, 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. Of course, no man has ever or ever will face what Jesus Christ faced. Some will face very difficult tasks, and it's during those times that we must remember these words that are given to us. Jesus was the most sensitive man to ever live. He wept at the death of Lazarus and wept over Jerusalem. He also showed righteous indignation on two occasions there in the temple court. He took little children into his lap and he lovingly held them. And thousands of times he reached out to those who had physical needs and he restored their health. We can't help but wonder why did he suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he did? Why did he groan and struggle on the ground? Why did he wrestle in prayer? If he had power over nature and demons and death, why did he respond in the manner that he does here in the Garden of Gethsemane? That's what I want us to look at tonight as we look at this passage, and we will look at other things in the future pertaining to this passage. But I want us to see why. Why he experienced what he experienced here in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. First of all, Jesus Christ experienced this to reveal to us that He is the God-man. That He wasn't only God, He wasn't only man, but He was the God-man. And here we see His humanity. Jesus knew that He would die an awful death. And the next day, that would take place. This, of course, was not an attractive thought. And we see there in verse 33, we are told that he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. The language that is used in this verse is that which conveys the idea of a man who is far from home and feels abandoned, feels lonely, longing for companionship, but finding none. I can remember when I was a 15-year-old boy, I was in Boy Scouts, and we went to the border of Canada on a canoe trip for two weeks. And as I was going on the canoe trip, to my knowledge, not to my knowledge, my grandfather passed away. And I remember coming back to the base camp and not having any mail from my parents, and I thought that was unusual. You know, I've been gone for two weeks. At least they could have sent me some kind of letter or something, but I had nothing in the mail from them, and my camp master came in, and he sat down with me. He said, Thomas, I have some sad news for you. Your grandfather has passed away. I think that's one of the most lonely feelings I ever had in my life because I was away. I was away from all my family, I loved my grandfather dearly. I was his favorite. I'd love to go to his workshop and I'd sit there and watch him work, and, and he would let me help him make things. That's where I first learned anything about woodworking as a little boy, and loved being around him. 
And knowing that he had passed away and knowing that I could not be there and I could not be with my family was a lonely feeling. But that's nothing compared to what our Lord and Savior felt on that night as he wrestled in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. These verses make it clear that Jesus' whole being was profoundly shaken as he began to feel the weight of the coming suffering that would come on him. And he doesn't hide this from his disciples. As we see, they, they recognize that as mentioned here. And they went to the place which was Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John to him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. So they saw that he was troubled. They saw that he was deeply distressed. Then there in verse 34 it says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Jesus was not Superman, boys and girls. He didn't possess immunity from pain, weariness, or dread. But he had to deal with each of these in his humanity. Abuse of a whip would come. A crown of thorns. Verbal attack. Spit. Spikes through his flesh, a sword in his side. All of these were pressing upon his mind how he would suffer. He understood that the prophet Isaiah had written those things that he would incur. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He is despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrow acquainted with grief, as Isaiah 53 speaks of. And he knew he was the fulfillment of each of these prophecies. He had an ordinary human central nerve system. And all the sensitivities of pain were his. The punches the pulling of the beard and hair, the thorns, the whip, the spikes, the sword, all would be painful, more painful than we ever could imagine. And he knew that he was going to be suspended between heaven and earth between two criminals and that he would be hung there under the sun to suffer until he died. And this is one of the reasons why his soul was so sorrowfully, exceedingly sorrowful, as the Scripture says. But he was willing to suffer all of this so that you and I might be redeemed. The thought of all of this drove him to the ground. It drove him to cry out to his heavenly Father as we see. He even inquired whether there might be another way the cup was something that he did not want to drink. His human flesh recoiled against it. His humanity recoiled against it. Well, there are times when we are tested. It might be our health. We've all experienced health problems, one extreme to the other. Some of those in our congregation have migraine headaches. 
Those are one of the worst pains I think that a person can experience. I used to have them 25 years ago. I, I am so thankful that the Lord saw fit to deliver me from those. I mean, there were times that I would literally pray, Lord, just take me. The pain is just simply too painful. There are times that we cry out for comfort from the Lord. Do you feel guilty because you're weak in those times? Do you think I should be trusting the Lord at this time? Why am I so apprehensive under this pain? But we should remember that Jesus lived on this earth trusting and serving His heavenly Father, yet He was overwhelmed with the thought of what He was going to experience in His body. This is why He struggled and wrestled. Second, Jesus had this experience to reveal that He was the Lamb of God that was promised. Remember the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' death was different from the death of any other person who ever lived. For He came to be the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He would be the sacrifice for sin. He would suffer the penalty of sin that we deserved. He would be under the wrath of God and He knew that. Man's sin would be imputed to the Lamb of God to be slain. Children, remember a few weeks ago we talked about the Passover. And what happened at the Passover? They would take that spotless lamb, that one-year-old lamb, and they would sacrifice that lamb. And of course that lamb pointed to Jesus. That's the reason why the Passover ended when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper the night before His death. Because there was no longer any need for the Passover because Jesus Christ would fulfill the Passover by being the Lamb. The death which Jesus was about to die was a judicial expression of God's absolute hatred for sin. He was to become the sole object of God's wrath as He hung there at Calvary on the cross. We know something of God's hatred. Scripture tells us He is angry with the wicked every day. And that there's not a day that goes by without us having said or done many things that are sinful, wicked, and evil. And God is angry with the universal wickedness of all mankind. All seven plus billion sinners are now living on this earth. And with what they say and do, at every moment God is not pleased. He's angry. We cannot imagine the sins of all the elect at one moment being placed on a single human being. But that's exactly what happened. All the sins of the elect were placed on Christ there at Calvary. At Calvary, Jesus would become the single object of God's wrath. The wrath that would have plunged us into an everlasting hell was now the focus, fierce and intense on the man, Jesus Christ. I mean, how should He respond? 
Should he hold his head high and take it and strive as he meditates upon it there in the Garden of Gethsemane? No. For there's nothing wrong with what Jesus did, for he was a human being just like you and me, though without sin. Christ loved all those whom God had given him with an agape love. And he was determined to save them by being that sacrificial lamb. So his agony and his concern of judgment that would come upon him, it was more than any one man could fathom. It is beyond our comprehension as well. We, we just cannot comprehend what Christ endured there on the cross. We get a little bit of it. We understand a little bit of it. But we cannot totally comprehend what happened to Christ there on the cross when our sins were placed upon Him. But Jesus Christ was the God-man, so He understood more than anyone else what He would be experiencing and he envisioned the pains of hell that would come upon him until he died. Can you imagine the anguish, the grief, the sorrow? No one is able to understand truly the pains of hell until they experience hell. We can talk about hell, we can meditate upon it, we can go outside and feel how hot it is and make a comparison, but yet really and truly we can't make a comparison. Because hell is so much worse than what we can even imagine. But the Jesus Christ, the most vivid picture of hell came upon Him of any man. Men have been cast into hell ever since the beginning of time, but Jesus Christ was about to experience hell coming upon Him. Hell is where the wrath of God is being poured out on sinners at this very moment. And grasping the nature of Jesus' agony causes us to appreciate more what He accomplished there at Calvary for us. Knowing that God's judgment has fallen upon the Lamb of God gives us the assurance that we are in Christ and will not be judged, nor condemned, nor sent to hell. That in itself should cause us to worship God more fervently. Our sins haven't simply been canceled. Our sins have been liquidated. He has bore them in His body on the tree, the entire due penalty of them, so that the sting of death is not there for us. The Lamb of God took the sting of death upon Himself. He was plunged, or hell was plunged into Him. And He began to experience it here in the garden to a certain extent. He knew the righteous judgment of God would come upon Him and judicial judgment would fall upon Him. But He gave His life willingly as the sacrificial lamb. Third, Jesus Christ had this experience to reveal that He was totally innocent, free from sin. As the God-man... We know that He was perfect. He was holy. He was sinless. Filled with wisdom and favor of God. He was the light of the world. Now what does that mean? Well, being the light of the world means that He was the source of all moral purity and holiness. 
When he was tempted by the devil, the devil failed time and time again as Jesus quoted scripture back to him and defeated him. Jesus said that he was always pleasing his heavenly father, that he kept all of his father's commandments and abided in his love. Pilate himself said what? I find no fault in him. Peter described him as a lamb without blemish or spot. He committed no sin, Peter said. And Peter had lived with him for three years, every day looking upon him and said there was no sin. If we lived with a person one day, we wouldn't be able to say that about the other person, would we? But for three years, Peter dwelt with him and knew that there was no sin. John knew him more intimately, and he said, in him there is no sin. The writer of Hebrews said Jesus was completely without sin. So this righteous one, God himself, is about to have all our sins imputed upon him. Our hatred, vileness. Lust, violence, evil actions, words, thoughts, all of this imputed upon Him. The Scripture says that He was made sin who knew no sin. No illustration can adequately describe what took place at Calvary. That which was perfect, having sin imputed to Him. Men, there's times that we have a white shirt and we'll take an ink pen and we get one little dot of ink from that ink pen on our white shirt. It's ruined, right? Because, I mean, it stands out. So obvious. Can't wear it. I tell my wife, oh, I can wear it. I hide it with my car. You ain't wearing it no more. You know? That's how wife is. You're not wearing that anymore. Got an ink stain on it. But this was like taking a white shirt and dipping it in a bucket of ink. There was no white left. And that's what he did for us. But what about Jesus Christ wasn't a drop of sin. It was plunged. He was plunged. Totally drenched. There was no divine filter which kept out the most cruel and evil sins. And all would fall upon him the next day. And he knew that. He anticipated the hellish change from complete godliness to complete sinfulness. Was about to factor the cause of Jesus Christ to fall to the ground there at Gethsemane and cry out to his heavenly father. This is another reason why he behaved like he did at Gethsemane. Fourth, Jesus Christ had this experience to reveal to us that he was the second Adam. Jesus Christ was not only the model man, God's great definition of man, but also the last Adam who is sweating blood there in Gethsemane. He's our federal head, the head of our new humanity. Do you realize that when he was in the garden, we were with him? When he went from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate, we were with him. When he went to the cross, we were with him. We were attached to him. He represented us. Thomas Goodwin talks about it being two giants. 
and a giant having a belt with many hooks. And either Satan has his people hooked to him and Christ has his people hooked to him. So we are hooked to Christ and where Christ went, we went with him. Do you see that whatever he did in the garden, whatever he did on the cross, it was never an individual man. But in everything he did, he bore the responsibility as the last Adam representing his people, holding us close to his heart. All that the Father had given him, he was saying, I won't let you go. That's why Paul would say, as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us in an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Every Christian knows the words, I have been crucified with Christ. But you were also in the garden. You were also lying with Christ on the ground there as he cried out to his Father. We were there with him as he asked for another cup. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Christ and will represent us with you. Why? Because he is our representative. He is the second Adam. Look at what Paul tells us there in Romans chapter 5 beginning with verse 12. Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigns from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by one man's offense death reigns through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man, of course Jesus Christ, righteousness, Acts, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, so that as sin reigns in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we see that Jesus Christ accomplished that as the second Adam. And fifthly, Jesus had this experience to reveal that he knew he would be forsaken, cut off, experienced that which he had never experienced. 
No one has ever had a relationship like Jesus Christ had with his father. Enoch walked with the Lord and was no more. David was a man after God's own heart. Job was blameless and upright. But only Jesus Christ did everything that pleased His heavenly Father. Only Jesus Christ had a perfect communion with the Father as a human being. No one has ever come close to the communion that Jesus had with His heavenly Father. Each day He prayed and talked with His heavenly Father. He walked with His heavenly Father. He will experience something, or we will experience something similar to that in glory. We long for that. But no one on earth has ever had the experience that Jesus Christ had with His heavenly Father. But for Jesus, the Father was always there to worship, to speak to, to help, acknowledging in every single crisis, He had always been there to assure Him of His love. The one thing which Jesus had never experienced was the loss of His Father's communion. The one reality that He was a total stranger to was to lose God's presence and the assurance of His being loved. This was uncharted territory for Jesus. But there in Gethsemane, He knew that the next day He would go through the valley of the loss of God. He would be the scapegoat in the wilderness. And he would cry out to God and God would not answer. He would ask ask God to explain and there would be no explanation. Sinclair Ferguson said, Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life he really feared. Not the cruel death which he would end. He knew he would rise again but the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be forsaken by God. He felt he could not live. Indeed, that life would not worthy, not worthy living without the consciousness of his Father's love for him. Again, we cannot comprehend that. There are times that all of us And we could say many times that we feel alone, without God, that our communion is not right. Jesus had never experienced that. He had always experienced the love of the Father. He had always experienced the communion with the Father. And now he is confronted with this crisis that would come upon him to where this communion would be stopped. We cannot comprehend that experience. The thought of losing our spouse is a troubling thought. But it cannot come close to the relationship and the communion that God the Father and God the Son in His humanity had. As Jesus prayed, He contemplated this thought that He would be cut off, that the Father would turn His back on Him, forsake Him as He became the sin offering. He would experience that which he had never experienced, separation from his Father. Rejection is something that we all have experienced at one time or another. And we don't like it. 
We seek to avoid it from the youngest of age because separation is painful. Most of us can all remember at some time or another when they were choosing teams and you might have been the last one to be chosen. I mean, how did it feel? It felt painful. You might not have been chosen at all. It was painful experience to be separated from everybody else. Rejection is something that we do not like. We seek to avoid it. And due to the profound sense of loneliness, when we are rejected, we do everything we can to be accepted. But none of us have experienced the pain of utter rejection. And if we are in Jesus Christ, we will never experience it. We will never experience that loneliness, that forsakenness of those who are cut off from God's grace. There's nothing like being cut off from God's grace. And there are many that are cut off from God's grace and they will be totally rejected because they have rejected the Savior. And because they have rejected the Savior, they will be utterly rejected by His Father. But as Jesus Christ prayed, He knew that He would experience a darkness beyond our comprehension. A loneliness that no man has ever experienced on earth. The darkness of God's wrath against sin placed upon Him. Calvin said, Our Lord Jesus was denied the light of the sun when He was in His suffering to signify the withdrawing of the light of God's countenance. And we see that while He was on the cross, He quoted Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Confirming this, it was the anguish of His cry, the one who for all eternity enjoyed the good pleasure of His heavenly Father. And at that moment, that good pleasure was not there. Being the Son of God and having a human nature enabled Him to experience what it means to be cut off, to be rejected by the Father. In His humanity, He represented us before God and received the curse of our sin so that we can enjoy God's blessings and not be cut off. R.C. Sproul says in his commentary on Mark, at the climax of that period of darkness, Jesus cried in agony. Not the agony of scourging or agony of the thorns or nail, but the agony of forsakenness. That is what was more painful than anything else that He experienced. The forsakenness of His Father. The incarnate Lord was cut off for the sake of others so that they may enjoy the fellowship of God. Forever, Jesus Christ at that very moment lost the smile of God so that we could receive the smile of God. Think about that. God turned His back upon His own Son so that we might be welcomed into His presence. Why did Jesus fall on the ground? Why did Jesus weep? Why did He sweat drops of blood? 
the thoughts of all of these experiences that I have mentioned were so overwhelming that he could do nothing else but these things. He literally collapsed at these thoughts. Tomorrow, when I am made sin, I'll lose my God. Jeff Thomas said, But the awfulness of Christ's situation is that God moves away from him as Christ moves close, as Christ moved close. God forsakes him like the prodigal forsook his father. He was nowhere to be found. The Son of God cannot find the great pillar against which he is secure. The harbor rescinds from the ship. Only after he has been entirely forsaken, only then will the abandoning cease, and to his father he returns. And sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool. No higher price could have been paid. And we are called to never cease loving this Savior. This one who willingly gave his life, who willingly suffered all of these things that I have mentioned, so that we might be brought into the presence of God and accepted into the presence of God. So we must be full of joy, full of worship, thanking Him for His sacrifice. Thanking Him for His willingness to go to Gethsemane and to struggle and wrestle there in prayer and to move forward and to go to the cross. Let us Meditate upon these truths so that it might move us to be faithful servants of His each and every day. Let us pray.